This morning is Sunday, it's May 8th, it is Mother's Day, and our message will be Mothers of All Restoration. Everything that occurs that God does on the planet through a human being will have to come through a woman in a manner of speaking. When you think about it, every great war that's ever been won, every great leader that has ever led a nation, every great inventor that has ever invented anything, all have one thing in common. They got on this earth with the help of a mother. It's interesting to note, too, that when you think about the formative years, because of the way that God designed the family plan, and we covered some of this in the message, raising up the next generation and then one generation away from apostasy, the family was the building block for God's plan of salvation. And really the family and the nurturing of the children centers around the mother. That's really, really interesting when you think about it. There's not a prophet that ever lived, not a king that ever ruled that was not greatly influenced by his mother or a woman who fulfilled the mother-like role in his life. Isn't that interesting? What an important thing then. If you turn with me to 1 Timothy 2, we're going to start in the first verse. On the idea that women partake in restoration, in fact, the goal the plan of God to restore all things to Himself, have His authority recognized in every part of the creation is dependent upon women. I thought that we would look at the first verse of uh, Timothy in the second chapter and then read from there. I want to preface this with this is a very controversial scripture. I mean, what we're going to end up with here is probably the most quoted anti a Christian scripture among feminist groups. So why on earth would we read that on Mother's Day? Well, I believe that the highest calling that a woman can have, the very highest, most noble thing she can do is raise godly children. And it's interesting that in the last 40, 50 years, there's not been an idea that was more attacked. Have you not heard on TV or in your lives, but for sure on TV, not thousands, but hundreds of thousands of times, a concept that was kind of uh, like this. I just didn't know who I was anymore. My identity was wrapped up in my children and my husband. I needed to define myself. I needed to go have a career and a life of my own. Are those not real popular things? I know when I was looking for a prospective bride, when when my heart began to be inclined towards marriage. I had a very hard time as I looked at my group of peers finding a single woman that was interested in raising a godly family. Everybody's thoughts tended towards other things because it's very unpopular. In fact, everything that you see on TV belittles and puts down on motherhood. Everything that you see. Unless it's a mother who is in corporate America who has uh, a child as kind of an ancillary job in her life, but who she is as a powerful career woman. That's a scene. But the housewife who loves and raises godly children, that is always shed in a negative light, as if it's an arcane idea. Barefoot and pregnant and in the kitchen and beaten by a husband is how it's always presented. I think that the reason that the scripture that we're going to read today has been so misunderstood and so attacked is because it is so essential to the church. So we're going to start in... 1 Timothy 2, verse 1. Y'all with me this morning? Everybody's quiet. Y'all are here. Matthew's here. Anybody else? All right. I urge you then, first of all, that requests, prayers, and intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, 
for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. I want you to know really quickly that there is a format for prayer here. First for kings and those in authority. And he goes right on down and he names it. Thanksgiving for kings and those in authority that we might live quiet and peaceful lives. One of the criticisms that comes particularly of Paul in the New Testament is that Paul often uses words like quiet when describing a woman's behavior. But I want you to hear here, I want you to hear that in this instance, quiet is used of all people. The term quiet life means that you're not a troublemaker. It doesn't at all mean that you never speak. Do you understand what I'm saying? But we'll cover some more here. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. And for this purpose I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying and a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. Paul is giving his servant, his son, a servant of Jesus in the gospel, instructions about godly living. And he starts with men and he moves right on to women. What does it mean to hold up your holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing? He's talking about having a clean conscience before God and men your hands being instruments that are used by God, not to let your life be filled with anger and disputes. In fact, every passage that we're going to read today that is often misunderstood has to do with an order of worship, an orderly way to live, so that outsiders, when they look at the church, would find it appealing. They would see something in it. They would see the God of order and the God of blessing in it. You know, Christians are like a ship in a bottle. You know, we were put together by a masterful maker there for everybody to see. You understand? The church is that. Imagine the church in its infancy. The, all the power of Rome looking down upon it. Everybody looking to see what would happen in the infancy of this religion. It's very, very important that Jesus was presented in the way that He w- in, was intended to be presented, would you think? I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Now, this is one of those scriptures that... Do you honestly believe after first reading of this that what Paul is telling Timothy is, I want all of the women to be totally unadorned? You can't do the lotions that I gave you this morning. Uh, They would be wrong for you. Do you think that he was really that against a certain hairstyles? Uh, it would be okay for you to have long hair, but you can't have extensions. I don't, I don't think that that's what this about, is about. I think it's about an attitude that women are supposed to portray. In fact, if you turn with me to 1 Peter, you'll see Peter pick up on this same thing. And now you're going to want to keep a finger in Timothy because we're going to be there an awful lot today. In 1 Peter 3... Speaking of wives, starting in verse 1. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husband, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over 
without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Before we get to the next part, a wife's behavior, a wife's behavior could win over her husband and that without words. Do you literally think that a husband and wife would live together forever, for years, for weeks, months, days, and have no words? Do you really think that that's what Peter is saying? Does it appeal to the common, good old-fashioned horse sense in you to say that a woman would never speak in her home and that that's what Peter's saying? No, he's saying that the thing that wins the husband over would not be the words, although they're present. It would be the godly behavior. Do you understand where the emphasis is? Okay, well, keep reading. Watch this. Verse 3. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair or the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way that the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. This is the way that the women of the past made themselves beautiful. How? Was it that they didn't wear jewelry? I assure you they did. I can show you where women even had their noses pierced. Something that would be offensive to most Christians in America today. How would you feel if my wife walked in here today with a big gold ring pierced through her nose? You'd probably go, oh my God, pastor and his wife are going crazy. What's wrong with them? But in the Old Testament, they did that. The Bible does not forbid you women from wearing pretty things. Oh wow, computer's hibernating. (laughs) Sorry about that, y'all. It doesn't forbid you from doing that. What it forbids you from doing is placing more emphasis on the way that your hair looks and the earrings that you have in your ears than on your godly lifestyle. In fact, the Bible says that a beautiful woman that does not have discretion is like a gold ring in a pig's snout. In other words, it's something that is beautiful that has become obnoxious. See, what Paul writing to Timothy is really trying to accomplish is to establish a proper attitude in women that would be watched. You know why? See, when you think of the Middle East today, when you think of the Middle East today, does anybody have a positive view of women in the Middle East? Not at all, huh? In fact, when our nation just overthrew the Taliban, for the first time we saw women have suffrage rights in Afghanistan. For the first time in thousands of years. Why is it that nobody has a positive view of women in the Middle East today? Because they are so disrespected. I mean, it's abhorrent the way that they're treated. Well, this was not the way in Judaism. This was not the way in Christianity. That came about under Islamic rule. That came about under the influence of Muhammad. During this time, during the day that these Scriptures are written, you know what was happening? There was a fantastic liberating force moving through all of the Roman Empire by way of Judaism and Christianity that honored and esteemed women. I'll show you today several women that were considered world leaders through Judaism. Women that changed the shape of a nation in Christianity. And Paul was saying, although these things are true, we still need to be conscious of the way that you act, conscious of the way that outsiders view you. You know why? There was a Roman law. And not just in, in Rome, I mean in several, in all of its provinces, but in, for sure in the Roman Empire. Did you know that in Rome, if you were in a public gathering and somebody was addressing a crowd and a woman spoke, spoke, period, spoke, could be put in prison. 
that although a male slave could speak, a woman could not speak. Now, Christianity was radically different. We see Paul say things like, you can all prophesy. You see, Acts record things like Philip had seven daughters who prophesied. In other words, the Bible takes it through Christianity, through Judaism, to a whole new level. Not only can a woman speak in public, but a woman can speak the very words of God in public. Isn't that amazing? But Paul says, hey, in your worship, everything has to be done orderly. And there's a reason for this. So let's cover that. We'll get to the hard part here. Uh, turn back to Second Timothy. Y'all still awake? You still with me through the computer crash here? First Timothy. Did I say second? I want to go to second all as well, but first Timothy, chapter two. I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety. I'm sorry, I can't get off this. Why might you want women to dress modestly? Because women that didn't dress modestly were associated with things that the church shouldn't be associated with. You know, D.L. Moody was a man who said, if you give me five righteous women, I will change the world. Five righteous women. Do you know why? In D.L. Moody's day, he began to see things like billboards, magazines, all using women in advertisement. Have you noticed that? Not very often do you see a car commercial featuring a beautiful guy. Not very often do you see a magazine cover featuring a beautiful guy. Not very often are there even male voices in it. That's because you women are powerful. And God knows that. And so does Satan. That's why women... Hey, we're all watching that television show that comes on about the singers, right? The most famous pop stars in our time, are they men or women? And the women that you think of, the ones that you think of through the last 20 years, would you describe them as dressing modestly? Not at all. Why is that? Because there is power in a woman's behavior. There's power in her actions. And people are moved by it. Paul wants Timothy to instruct the church to have the women dress in an appropriate manner. This is not like Islam. This is not cover your whole body, cover yourself with a burqa so that nobody will see you and be tempted to sin. Paul's telling Timothy to tell the women, I want you to set an example that others can follow because people will watch you. They'll be impressed with your inner beauty. They'll want to do... It's not to keep people from sinning. That's our first thought. It's to teach people the right way to live. How did Peter approach it? Peter said, hey, your beauty shouldn't come from these outer things. It should come from an inner... This is how the women of the past lived. And we saw that the women of the past adorned themselves with different things. He's trying to set an example of what Christians do, not what Christians don't do. Does that make sense? That's a familiar theme for me anyway. I also want women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. I do not want to relegate this Scripture simply to a cultural issue because there's a truth in it that is still true today. While pearls may not be something that is unmodest today and braided hair is certainly not, the idea that you would not focus on outward adornments but would focus more on your, uh, the beauty that comes from the divinity that God has placed within you by way of His Spirit is still applicable. But there is a cultural element. 
societal norms do change. What is considered not having propriety, not being modest or decent in one nation is different than another nation, and yet God never changes. So how would you know? How would you know what is okay in Brazil and what is okay in China? How would you know if you're a woman? I mean, in one culture, it might be just the most gaudy thing on the planet for you to wear a certain kind of dress. And in another, it might be the normal dress of the church. So how would you know? Your focus has got to be on the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's got to be upon what God has done in you. And that's the beauty that you radiate. But for sure, if you become aware through the Holy Spirit or through society and the way they're reacting around you, that things aren't going well, that you're not achieving your desire. For me, for instance, I don't think a thing about feet. You know, feet are not something that interests me at all. But in some cultures, to expose a foot is a big deal. Well, although you have the freedom in Christ to expose your feet whenever you would like to, ladies, if you were in a culture that that was a big social taboo, in keeping with the spirit of the Scripture, you might cover your feet, huh? Why? So that the gospel would have a chance to flourish there. Make sense? I don't know why I choose Sunday mornings to cover all the Bible difficulties, but I guess it's when we have most of the people here. I also want women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. Let me go ahead and read the rest. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. We will not go into the reasons yet. He lists three very specific reasons here in a minute. But I don't permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must learn in quietness and full submission. If you place this in its context, living in a society where women were not even allowed to speak publicly, but you were teaching in the church that you could speak and you could speak with the very Word of God, putting this in its context, and we're going to see it in several other places, I think what you're going to find is that women were not to stand up and challenge the person who was preaching with their own ideas. They were not supposed to stand up and create a situation that would be viewed as disorder by all of the society around them. In fact, turn with me to Corinthians 14. Keep your finger in 1 Timothy. Say, Lord, what does this have to do with Mother's Day? I promise I will get there. Corinthians 14. In the Thompson chain, this is going to be on page 1277. Actually, 1278. Starting in verse 33. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations... Actually, why don't I start in verse 26? What then shall we say, brothers... When you come together, everyone has a hymn. Everyone. Why didn't he say every male? Anybody have an idea? Why didn't he say every male? Because he didn't mean every male. He meant everyone. Everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. All of these must be done. Unless, of course, it's with a woman. No, he says all of these must be done. For the strengthening of the church. If anyone speaks in a tongue, 
Two or at the most three should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. If you're going to stand up and prophesy in a language you don't know, there needs to be an interpretation. And let's not do more than one at a time. And not more than a total of three. Otherwise, people are going to be standing there not knowing what's going on. Very practical words of instruction. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and God. Two or three prophets should speak, and all the others should weigh carefully what is said. Now, when we say prophet, you think of a man, don't you? But what about Huldah? She was a prophetess. I mean, what about Anna, who met Jesus at the temple? The Bible says she was a prophetess. What about Philip's daughters who prophesied? See, to say that the Bible says women cannot speak, period, you all have to sit here and be silent, and to miss the truth of what we're going to cover in Timothy because of this offense is to ignore the greater majority of the Scripture that says women do speak. Instead, what he's trying to do is establish an order. For you can all prophesy, verse 31, in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of the prophet are subject to the control of the prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. His whole emphasis in he, as he's teaching, his emphasis in Timothy, Peter's emphasis in Peter, Paul again writing in Ephesians, all of these scriptures that we're going to cover have to do with doing things in a right way. Doing things in a way that is palatable to the people that are around. There are many times the Scripture will cause you to be absolutely unpalatable. But wherever possible, we want to be all things to all men, but they might be saved, right? Paul went so far as to say, if you having a problem with him eating meat, he'd never eat meat again. Although his own conscience said, there's nothing wrong with meat. that make sense? Okay, watch what he says now. As in all the congregations of the saints... Women should remain silent in the churches. This is in the context of public speaking. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. That's really interesting. As the law says. Y'all remember that, okay? As the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home. For it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Now, we just said that everybody could have a hymn. Everybody could have a song, even a word of instruction or a prophecy, a tongue or an interpretation. But now he's talking about women being silent in the church. So do we say that what he really meant to say earlier was men could prophesy, men could speak in tongues, men could sing songs or speak in hymns? I don't believe so. I think what he's doing is talking about the culture of his environment. He was in an environment where if a woman spoke up in a public meeting, she could be imprisoned. And he's saying in the church, when somebody is speaking, if you take issue with what he says, if today, while we're here, Mandy takes serious issue with what I say, rather than stand up and challenge me, which was the custom of the day, and you see that happening in the synagogues while Paul was speaking, he's saying it'd be better if you asked your husband at home. It'd be a disgrace to the church if you cause a public scene over this. Does that make sense? Now, admittedly, these things could be something that would cause you to go, ooh, Christianity looks kind of oppressive to women. You mean you don't have every right that a man has? We're going to cover it. You absolutely have every right, and there's not a right that a man has that he didn't get through a woman. But we each have our roles, and we need to learn to embrace these roles, see them as freeing rather than bonding. 
excited about them because it's our part to participate in God's plan of salvation. Turn with me back to Timothy. We'll read a little further. Do y'all mind flipping around in your Bible so much? At the very least, everybody know where all the books are, huh? Timothy 2, verse 11. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. Does he say that a woman can't teach? No, in Corinthians he said you can have a word of instruction. He just says you can't teach or exert authority over a man. In other words, if God has anointed a pastor to be the pastor, it is not your place to exert authority over him. In fact, this is the model in Judaism. Can you name me a single uh, Aaronic or Levitical priest who was a female? Why not? There weren't any. The burden of authority and leadership in that regard always fell to a man unless there was not a man who would do it. And then to shame the men, because you women very well can do anything that God calls you to do. Most of the time you do it better than men do. It's just not your role in life. Not that you can't do it. It's not your burden to have to do it. Deborah's a great example of that. Barak and some of the other leaders in Israel would not do what God said to do. So he raised up a woman who did it and said, because you guys won't do this, it's going to be a shame to you. A woman's going to get credit for all of it. You know, people ask all the time, well, what about so-and-so? And what about so-and-so? Is that okay? What seems to be clearly okay in the Bible is for women like Miriam to lead Israel's ladies in song and dancing and in teaching. For women like Deborah, in the absence of true male leadership, to stand up and answer the call of God. What seems to be absolutely okay is for women to do exactly what God's called them to do. But in a general sense, the Bible absolutely forbids females having the attitude that says, I'm going to exert authority over you to men. Now, isn't that exactly what our generation has been marked by, though? Anything a man can do, I can do better? Uh, I saw a bumper sticker one time that said, uh, all men are idiots and I married their king. There is a man-hating spirit in our generation. And it doesn't just hate men, it hates women that embrace their God-given role. Their role to participate in the restoration of all things by raising godly children. It hates it. In fact, some of you ladies have experienced this. Have you never been in a corporate setting or at a party or something? And somebody said, well, what do you do? And you said, I'm a housewife and I'm raising children. And they kind of sneered as if, you know, oh, that's all. Or like you needed to get liberated, get out from under that oppressive husband. I see it all the time. I'm not, please don't put words in my mouth. I'm not telling you it's not okay to work. I'm not telling you that it's not okay to have other interests in your life. What I'm telling you is the most noble thing that a woman can do is raise the right kind of children. And you said, but wait, wait, what if she can't have children? Or or is this true of all women? There are women that have gifting, just like Paul did. What, What did Paul say his special gifting was? Anybody? He had a special gifting to remain single so that he was only married to Jesus. That even sounds funny, doesn't it? But that was a special and unique gifting. There are women that have the same thing. But in a general sense, that's not what men are called to do. Most men are not called to remain single. And neither are women. We each have our function. Go in Timothy. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. 
For Adam was formed first, then Eve. What's he doing? He's describing the order of creation. Now, we're going to read that in a little bit, as if you all haven't read it a million times with me. But it says, Adam was formed first, then Eve. Do you all remember when Adam was formed? He was given his role in creation. Then later he sees he was inadequate to do it by himself. He needed help. But nevertheless, he was the one that was placed over everything. Now, if he was inadequate to do it by himself, and a helper was made for him, what did that mean? They were both dependent upon one another. She certainly wasn't adequate to do it by herself. She was made for the purpose of helping him. But he wasn't able to do it himself. He knew he needed it, and God said it was good. So the two are working in tandem. Does that make sense? Paul's first point about this is that Adam was formed first and then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Let me ask you something. Is that hard for you to read? I remember the first time I read this, I said, my God, I can't believe that. Why would he point that out? Is he rubbing you ladies' face in it as if you're sinners and men are not? This is the same guy who writes, all men have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. He's the same guy that speaks about this in Romans over and over and over and even says his own nation was bound over to sin. Talking about the whole nation. So is he trying to rub you ladies' face in the fact that a woman sinned first? No, because what did the guy do? What did he do? He followed his wife's lead, didn't he? Boy, you ladies are powerful. Eve was enticed, and when the husband saw the wife was enticed, he joined her in it. You ladies are awesomely powerful. Paul's line of reasoning here is, first the man was created, this is the natural order of things. And by the way, ladies, secondly, because you were not designed for this head position, you're more likely, you're more subject to certain kinds of temptation. That that was it. Now, what's funny about that is, men are, are more subject to certain kinds of temptation, and we know that. But the Bible describes women as a weaker vessel. Does that mean inferior, weaker? No. Different vessels have different purposes. Some are made to bear a huge burden. Others are made for delicate procedures. Both are just as important. Is an axe stronger than a scalpel? Well, sure. But do you want to be operated on with an axe? There are many times in my life I'm the axe and Jennifer's the scalpel. I, those of you that have come to us for counseling know that. I mean, most people would rather hear the words come from Jennifer's mouth than mine. Does that mean our household's out of order? No. We just are built differently and we work together as a unit. Does that make sense to y'all? Okay. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Here's where we get to our key text this morning. What you see on this screen up here is uh, in parentheses are the inserted footnotes. If you read in your Bible, you'll see a footnote next to women and a footnote next to saved. And I have inserted for you that footnote so that it can be read. All of this discussion is about the order of creation. All of this argument about women uh, being second in the order of creation and about being uh, slightly uh, weaker in, in constitution is followed by this statement. And this is the most misunderstood statement in the Bible. No, it's not the most. It's the most misunderstood by feminist groups regarding Christianity. It says, but she, or 
will be restored or saved through childbearing if they, meaning womankind, continue in faith, love, holiness, and propriety. Is it true that a woman sins? Yes. And man joined her in it. But what is the way out of this? The way out of it is that Eve will be restored through childbearing if women, plural, womankind, continue in faith, love, holiness, and propriety. Now, why would that be? Because the promise was given to a woman. And the promise fell on a woman some 4,000 years later. God did not go to Adam and say, Adam, boy, your wife really screwed this up. And you screwed it up too by joining her in it. And so I'm going to fix it through you, Adam. The promise was not given to a man that from his body somebody would come that would fix this. The promise was given to a woman. So every time there was a mother, the hope was alive. You could say that they were pregnant with hope. If we were in 10 B.C. and I saw that my wife, who is here and is pregnant, was pregnant, I might be hoping, is this the deliverer? Is this the one who would come? Because this promise had been given to Eve, a promise that somebody through her would restore all things. And Paul said, ladies, when we're talking about worship, I want you to dress with propriety. I want you to act in a way that your good deeds shine before men. Shine before all people, actually. Because this was the hope that people were saved into. That through childbearing, all people would be restored. That's basically what that says. Because is it only women that get saved? I mean, it says, but she or women will be restored or saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness, and propriety. Does that mean that only the women get saved? Paul never separates the male role from the female role in his mind. He's going to make the statement in Corinthians 11 that man's not independent of woman and woman's not independent of man. As each one of us performs our role, we see the creation get restored. What would happen tomorrow? In fact, think about it. When Moses was born, what did Pharaoh issue a decree saying? Kill all the babies, right? When Jesus was born, what, what did Herod issue a decree saying? Kill all of the babies. If we want to stop the Deliverer from arriving, we need to stop babies from coming about. Now, this morning we talked about the Women's Pregnancy Center before the service. That's one way to stop it. But what would be an even smarter way to stop the babies? Let's say you can't abort them all. You know our birth rates decline every year? They decline every year. Why do you think that is? Is it just because of what people say it's just that much harder to have children today? There is a consistent, concerted effort in this country and growing around the world to diminish the role of raising children as if it is some kind of inadequacy. There's something wrong with you. You're leading a less fulfilling life if you decide to do that. Why might that be? Why might the devil want to attack that role? Because women are saved. Mankind is saved or restored through the act of childbearing. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean simply that by effacing a certain percentage, by dilating a certain percentage, and having one human being come out of you, that that's like a, a physical act that magically causes salvation? No. We were waiting for the Messiah, and now that the Messiah has come, we are completing His body. If every woman on the planet today stopped having children, you know what couldn't be completed? The body of Christ. 
The Bible speaks about a full number of Gentiles coming in and then God's focus returning to Israel. That could never happen if we stop having children. I preached and said that the church was one generation away from apostasy. If you don't teach your children, then they won't grow up in the faith and the church will die. It's worse than that. If you don't raise godly children, the church, not the local church, the church as a whole couldn't exist. We're all members of the body of Christ. I bet you never saw it. You think, I'm raising a child to be a doctor. I'm raising a child to be a lawyer. I hope they become something great. God hopes that they do His will and become something great in His kingdom. And He called you for that purpose. Now, you can kick sometimes, and I know it's frustrating. I can't do it is why I know it's frustrating. There's not a lot of things that I feel like I can't do. I don't do very well when I have to play the role, because I'm not built for it, that my wife plays. If something causes her being out of town or whatever it is, for me to have to walk in her shoes, I don't do well with it. That's not because I'm a lazy pig, like some women would think. You know, That's not because all men are just idiots. I am not built for it. Although the Bible calls me stronger, I am not built for this task. It doesn't work. I try. I fill in. I ask for God's help. But the truth is, I'm dependent on her for it. Why is it so offensive for me to turn that around and say some things are not her role? She's not built for some things and needs to lean on me for them? Why would that be so offensive? But it is to society at large. It's, it's an abhorrent idea to think that men are uniquely suited for some task and women for others. We've gotten so perverse with this idea that we thought that there was no difference between a male child and a girl child, and their parts were almost interchangeable. And however you raise them, that's what they would be. Boy, that study really failed, didn't it? Now they have children that are today in their 20s that although they look anatomically like a male or a female, they're really not. And they're confused and their behavior is different. Now, I'm not talking about transsexuals for those that aren't familiar with the study. There were children born with ambiguous genitalia. But you could tell from internal organs, from internal workings, whether they were male or female. But they made them whatever was easiest for them because they said it made no difference. Your environment determines whether you're male or female. That is not true. It never has been true. It didn't matter how they dressed the little boys up as girls how they changed their environment, they were still little boys. Move on from that. Something that I, I hope you'll consider as we're reading this and we're thinking about Paul and we're thinking about Timothy and thinking, well, it does sound a little bit sexist. Look at this Scripture. 2 Timothy 1, verses 5 through 6. This is Paul writing to Timothy in a second letter. I have been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois, and in your mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded, now lives in you also. Who gets credit for the faith that is in Timothy? Who gets credit for shaping this guy's life, the apprentice to Paul? Who gets credit for that? His mother and grandmother. Now, commentators are really quick to say, well, we know his father was a Greek because the Scripture says that. He must not have been a believer. Scripture doesn't say that. But the mother and grandmother get credit. Why do you think that might be? Who spends more hours in a day with my sons? So when he does something good and I take credit for it, is that really fair? 
really not. The world's leaders, the great men, if you will, of the world were shaped by women. And that was by God's design. Men have the attitude sometimes that, oh, that kid's a mama's boy. I can't believe he would spend so much time. I'm worried about him. He's going to grow up funny. God designed that men would have their early years shaped by women. It's perhaps also that He designed an age where certain chemicals and stuff in your body cause you to have feelings that women often can't relate to. But the formative years of every child's life were meant to be spent with a mom. Nature even teaches us that, doesn't it? Paul just echoes it. And I want to remind you, anytime you're ever in a position where you're worried about the way a Scripture reads, spend some time in it, dwell on it, God will show it to you, and look at the other Scripture around it. If Timothy is Paul's son in the faith, the guy that Paul most hopes reflects him, wouldn't he be tempted to give himself credit for the faith that lives in there? If he was a sexist pig, wouldn't he be tempted to give Timothy's father credit for the faith that lives in him? Mother and grandmother. Turn with me to Ephesians. And then we're going to move on with the idea of restoration. Go in Ephesians. Ephesians 5. Starting in verse 15. Be very careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. Well, that's really Paul's heart, isn't it? As he's describing the way that we worship, the way... You remember that Paul understood there were freedoms that you have. And those freedoms are different in one culture to another. But you need to live as wise. You can't let your freedom destroy someone else. I have freedoms to eat and drink whatever I want. But if I'm in the company of people that do not understand that, and they sincerely love the Lord but would be crushed by seeing those freedoms, I just abstain. You understand? Women, you, you're powerful, awesome people that God has uniquely designed for raising up generations of leaders. You're qualified for that. And wise beyond belief. The Bible even tells Abraham one time to, man, would you shut up and listen to your wife? I mean, basically says that. But if you were in a setting where the culture did not permit certain interactions, wouldn't you be willing to submit to that for the purpose of the gospel getting out until it could be changed? Now, I, I want to make it really clear before I move on. I'm not saying that women can't do anything. I'm not judging national ministries led by women or anything else. I'm just saying that the biblical teaching on, on the subject seems to emphasize that women don't exert authority over men. That it's a man's role to have heard from God and bear that authority and it's women's roles to support that. There are huge examples of women prophesying on God's behalf, speaking the words of God to people. There are huge examples of women teaching other women. I, I, and I'm not condemning anybody. I'm just telling you that's kind of how I see the word. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah. Do you have questions? Ask your husband. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I really am kidding. All right. Ephesians 5. Starting in uh, verse 15. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. I wonder why I said don't drink it. 
Just don't get drunk on it. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. I want you to notice that the model here, when we're talking about this, is that the husband loves the wife, and he's going to go on to emphasize that. The wife loves the husband, and it's a mutual submission. This has nothing to do with a forced submission. Can you show me any time in your life where Jesus forced you to do anything? No. Simply makes known what the will is, and you can be obedient or disobedient, and God is your judge. Husband-wife relationships work the exact same way. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the Word, and to present her to Himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but feeds it, cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are all members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery that I am talking about Christ and the church. When we're thinking about this natural order of things, every time they go back to the beginning of creation. Every time. They go back to the beginning of creation because the natural order was established. And at the same time this order was established, promises were given for salvation. The salvation that we all hope to enjoy, the salvation that we are by faith participating in now, is dependent upon two things. It's dependent upon men and women both performing the function that God called them to perform. If there ever ceased to be any obedient people on the planet, God's plan would fail. But He knew, and even in Elijah's day, when Elijah said, I'm the only one, God has always reserved a remnant that would understand. But understand, it's a remnant. So don't be surprised when popular culture says something's wrong with you if you do not remain single, have sex with whoever you would like, and make all the money you can in the corporate world because what's important is your clothing and your cars. Don't be surprised if that's the case. Or if popular culture places every emphasis on outer beauty and no emphasis on inner beauty. Why, why should we be surprised by that? These are things that are anti-Christ in nature because they are working against the building of the body of Christ. What you see on the screen... Is Corinthians 11, verse 3, and then I skip to 7 through 12. I'm going to read it. Y'all don't turn there because I'm going to go to Genesis in a minute. We need to kind of move this along. It says, Now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Sound familiar? Same themes that have been repeated everywhere. Verse 7, 
A man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. For this reason, and because of the angels, the woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. That's another issue that we'll teach on, but you do see the order there. In verse 11, In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Each person has their own role. And it all comes directly from God. Now, the New Testament is the revealed Old Testament. It said that in the Old Testament, the New Testament lies concealed. In other words, all the principles expounded upon in the New Testament are found in the Old, but there's a multitude there and you have to pick them out. Well, the New Testament is almost like cliff notes for the Old. In the New Testament, you see the concepts from the Old revealed. We have great benefit because we have both. And you can read this completed work of God now and go back and see these themes where it might have been harder to see originally. Does that make sense? You saw the order emphasized over and over and over, didn't you? You saw the role emphasized. You even saw Paul say that women were saved through childbearing. Since we see that, rather than go, oh my God, what does this mean? Paul's a sexist who just thinks that women should just be spitting out babies left and right and have no life for themselves. Instead of thinking that, why don't we look in the Old Testament to see what principle that's revealing? Well, you can find that in Genesis. Starting in Genesis 2, and I'm going to go through this part really quickly because although it's our text this morning, it's something that you're familiar with. Starting in verse 18, The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, if it's offensive to, to women at large to say that women need a man in their life or need men's help or are not suited for certain tasks, why would it not be offensive to say that God Himself said it's not good that a man be alone? See, the reality is the Bible does not present woman as being dependent upon man alone. It doesn't present man as being dependent upon woman alone. It depicts a relationship where you both are equally needy of each other. Because God designed a family, He designed a process where you would both need each other, have to work together, and you remember what we just read in Ephesians? He said, this is a profound mystery, but I'm not really talking about men and women here. I'm talking about Christ and the church. See, Christ and the church get together like a man and woman both having a need of each other, and they produce something. What do Christ and the church produce? Salvation. A restoration for all of the earth. A man and woman getting together, as God has called them to be, produce something. They produce children by which salvation and restoration occurs. This was God's plan from the beginning. So God says it's not good to be alone. And then we see that God, uh, verse 19, Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. Do you really think that God thought that there would be a suitable helper? 
I mean, is it reasonable to believe that the God of the universe really thought that Adam was going to think a dog or a deer or a cat would be a suitable helper? So what do you think the answer is? Some of you have heard this before. God had the idea, but He wanted Adam to have the idea. So He passed before Him pairs of everything. A little male squirrel and a female squirrel. A male rabbit and a female rabbit. Those kind of animals so that when Adam named them according to their function, he would see that he was in need. There's a time in every man's life when he begins to realize he is incomplete. Some earlier than others, but every man at some point, unless they're uniquely gifted by God like Paul was, to live a a solitary life just with the church, and that's a rare thing, every man realizes, I'm incomplete. I need help. Likewise, out there, every woman at some point, unless uniquely gifted by God, begins to yearn in their heart for the other half of them. And the natural conclusion is as the two become one flesh, you're producing something. Well, it was a promise to Eve of what she would produce in that process. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib that he had taken out of the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. The natural order of things is that the man was given the responsibility to rule the creation, and then a helper was made for him. Not inferior, not unequal, in fact. She was a half of him. You know, this word is not rib. And if it weren't rib, it would help you understand. It literally means God took something from the side of man. It's like He split him in two. Does that make sense to you? And what He came out with, they called a woman. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Equal. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. Turn with me to Genesis 3.14. You know what's happened here. We've had what Paul described. We've had a woman be enticed by a wicked serpent. The man joined her in this enticement. And now the promise is given. First, a curse is given to the serpent. Verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity or warfare between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. Do you know that to a Jew who is our example, Judaism is our example, it would be no guarantee if I said Judah was my son. If I said, I'm a Jew, and therefore Judah is a Jew. That really didn't matter to them. That was not important at all. What was important was that they knew who his mother was and that she was a Jew. You might be unsure of who somebody's father is. You're never unsure of who their mother is. And what's more important than that? Who's going to spend most of their time with that child? You want to be sure that they're a Jew, not just physically, but spiritually? The mother better be a Jew. Have you ever heard that religion's for women and children? That's because men 
have delegated that role, which admittedly, primarily, child raising falls upon the woman, but they've totally delegated that role to absolve themselves of all responsibility, women can't get away from it. They take their children to church because there's something inside of them that drives them to. And God put it there. They know that they have a responsibility for the children, that the children would be raised in a godly fashion. And although hard-hearted men can shirk the responsibility, women almost never can. That's why at some point in your life, if somebody took you to church, it was almost always a woman. You, you talk to people and they say, oh, it was, it was my mom. Dad stayed home on the couch, but it was my mom. Or it was my grandma. Or in some cultures, my auntie. <laughs> but it was a woman that took them to church. That's not because God designed religion for women and children. That's because they have the strongest draw. And women tend to be more sensitive to the Spirit. Go ahead, girls. You just are. I don't have to resent that. I can strive to be more like it. I can be excited. Or I can just embrace my other half. Who is? She's, like, she's in the back of the room now going, you know, when I do something wrong. Okay. Genesis uh, 3, 14 through 16. And I will put an enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. This is a restatement of the order. Now, this order in the household, your desire will be for your husband, he will rule over you. What did Ephesians say? It's a mystery. But I'm not talking about a husband and wife. I'm talking about Christ and His church. The church's desire would be for Jesus and He would rule over. But it's reflected in the household. Have you wondered why so many people grow up with wrong ideas about God? They didn't see those ideas portrayed in their families. Daddy didn't act like Father God. Mama didn't act like the church. So they don't understand the relationship. That's also why we have a world religion, one-fifth of the world's population, that has an unhealthy emphasis on the mother of Jesus so that their concept of God is warped. It's wrong. Look at Genesis 3.20. This is the kind of go-to verse. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of the living. Now, if you couple that with Timothy, Timothy or Paul said to Timothy that women would be saved or restored through childbearing if they continued in the faith. That is exactly, exactly what Genesis 3.20 shows Adam understood. He heard this promise given to her and he said, Wow, you're going to be the mother of everybody who's alive. All mothers have a part in salvation because you are bringing about something that will restore all things. The mother of restoration concept was passed on. It didn't stop with Eve. When you think about Eve, you say, well, she didn't produce the Messiah. So what happens? Each woman had hoped for that. Around the globe, every woman that came from her. So then in Genesis 17, verse 15, we see, and y'all can read this on the screen if you like, because we're running out of time. Sarah's called the mother of all nations. God also said to Abraham, verse 15, as for Sarai, your wife, Sarai means like drill sergeant, you are no longer to call her drill sergeant. Her name will be Sarah, princess with God. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. 
Now, tell me something. Did she really give birth to a whole nation? No. Did Eve really give birth to salvation? No. But each fulfilled a role in that. As Eve gave birth to something that was alive, it continued the promise of God. This woman didn't give birth to a nation, but she gave birth to one who would give birth to one, who would give birth to one that formed a nation. This is why John G. Lake's mother was maybe somewhat corrected by God. She says, what is my calling? She was living in a day when the beginning of this kind of social movement away from motherhood and more towards the cosmopolitan woman was taking place. What is my calling? What do I do? God said, raise your children. She said, what do you think I was going to do? Choke them? I mean, like that was a stupid response. I mean, that's what she said she thought in her mind. Obviously, she didn't say that to God. She had no idea that her children would spark revival around the world. This promise was given to a woman and it was passed on to each woman thereafter. We all hope for things for our children. Today we honor mothers because you've participated in the promise of God. You haven't sat back and just talked about it. You haven't said, that's great, but it's not my calling. You haven't said, well, I'll write a check and someone else can do it. You are participating in the restoration of God's people. Incidentally, it wasn't just Sarah, Rebecca, and as many women as you can think of in the Bible desired children. They're willing to fight for it, trick people for it, bribe people. One even posed as a prostitute. Because they wanted to participate in the plan of God for salvation. Rebecca was said by her friends when she was getting married to Isaac, they came and said in Genesis 24, 60, and they blessed Rebecca, whose name means irresistible, by the way, and said to her, Our sister, may you increase to thousands upon thousands. May your offspring possess the gates of their enemies. These are all ways that God's progressive revelation was given to women about the children that they would bear completing the plan of God. The potential and the attitude are best displayed in Mother Mary. They're not best displayed in Mother Mary as she's seen today by most people. They're not best displayed in Guadalupe, Fatima, or any of these other ridiculous manifestations. They're best displayed in the holy written word which that church hates. They're best displayed in the words of Mary recorded in Luke. Turn to Luke 1. We're going to close after these couple scriptures here. Y'all in Luke? Oh, y'all aren't going to Luke, are you? In Luke 1, we're going to read about the birth of Jesus. Before we get there, did you know, who would you say the most powerful king in all of Israel ever was? I mean, who is the guy that they study even in Western civilization in the golden age of Israel? Solomon. Solomon had a kingdom that stretched further than any other kingdom, even David's. Solomon had relative peace and prosperity. He built a temple for God that symbolized the millennial reign. Solomon had wealth beyond belief and was said to be the wisest man on the planet. Let me read you something about Solomon while you hold your finger in Luke. It's in 1 Kings 2.19. When Bathsheba, who's Bathsheba to Solomon? Oh, that's right, it's his mom. When Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak to him for Adonijah, the king stood up to meet her, bowed down to her, and sat down on his throne. He had a throne brought in for the king's mother, and she sat at his right hand. That is a good example of how Judaism and Christianity, which is an extension of Judaism, have honored women. You find me a pagan religion. You find me another dynasty in the world 
that a king who was ruling most of the known planet at the time would prostrate himself before a woman and put a throne right beside him with a woman on it. But the Bible teaches us to honor our mothers in that way. Why? Because not only did they bring us into the world, they're completing the plan of God as they fulfill their role. Little Chloe right there is a part of the plan of God. Just as much as Mary was when she performed her role before God. We all have different roles, but they all have to be performed. It's why there's such pressure on women to shirk that responsibility. It's why daycares are raising more children than households are. That's why. Because the devil does not want godly children to be raised up. It completes the plan of God. That's why it's seen as something wrong, arcane, backwards. You know, Paul wrote in Romans 2 that these people who thought they were wise had become fools and that their men were caught up in shameful lust. And then to go a step further as if it was almost unbelievable. It says, so much so that even the women exchanged natural relations for unnatural. In other words, we expected the men to go bad. But even the women, like that was almost unthinkable. We live in a time period where that's not unthinkable at all. The strive of women's equality today is focused around the idea that we can be every bit as sinful as men can instead of honoring the position that God has given them as empowered, I am bringing about salvation as I do my job. They exchanged, Romans 2 says, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for foolish idolatries. Don't we do the same thing if rather than esteeming mothers, we esteem somebody who has sex in the city? Hmm. All right, y'all in Luke 1? Verse 26, In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went up to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Now, if this was a woman who could not speak in a synagogue, if this was a woman who was in submission and quietness in a negative sense, whose husband was looming over her, why would God show up and call her highly favored? See, although the roles of women and men are different, God highly favored this woman who had never done a miracle. You know of any miracle she did? She never preached a sermon. Never before. She certainly didn't lead a large company like Kmart. But God highly esteemed her. I wonder why. What attitude did he find within her that was so pleasing? Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. Why? How? What did she do to find favor with God? And saints, on this day when we honor our mothers, think about what they've done to find favor with God. You know, you can be angry with your mom. You know why? You know why it's easy to get angry with mom? You're the closest to her. You know, fathers really have to work for the affection of their children. But it flows naturally straight to the mom. Why? Why is that? Why do I have to work to get Gabriel to play with me, but he's glued to Jennifer? There's a natural bond there that God put. If you ever find yourself angry with your mom, it's probably because you love them as much as you do. And something's disappointed one of you. 
reconcile. I call my mom every Sunday now. I call her every Sunday and I have for several months because I want a good relationship with her. If I don't owe her anything else, I owe her something for working to complete the plan of God. You know, it wasn't my father that took me to church when I was a kid. My mom took me to Bible studies where a woman prophesied over me and said, this man is going to do something for the kingdom of God. She said some other things. My mom thought they were crazy, but something in her drove her to those places. My life was not characterized by church, not at all, but I had a mom that dared it all to bring me. Some of you did too. Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, Yeshua. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Before we get to Mary's response, how do you know what the child in a woman's womb will do? I mean... You've heard it before. Mary's somewhere between 12 and 16 more than likely. 12. We like to say 14 to 18. That makes us feel better. She's probably between 12 and 16. What might she be counseled to do today? It's going to ruin your life. Don't have this baby. This is going to ruin your life. You'll have no life of your own. You're not built for this. You can't handle this. You're still a child yourself. How can you have a child? I'm not advocating 12 to 14 year olds having kids. But I'm just saying, what would be said to her? And yet God said she was highly favored. In fact, this was of Him. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. I'm sorry, I skipped verse 34. How will this be, Mary asked, since I'm a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who is said to be barren is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. Mary understood, and the reason that all generations are to call Mary blessed is because she understood her role as a mother. Not the mother of God. The mother of a child who did great things and who was declared to be God. Does that make sense? Mary saw herself as a servant of God doing what God required, doing what God asked. Eve did too. Sarah did too. Rebecca did also. Samson's mother did also. There's story after story in the Bible where like a woman named Tamar fought, tricked, deceived, did anything she could do to have a child because she saw it as a part of God's plan and her place in it. Motherhood's to be esteemed. Now, some of you don't have children. I know that. Look what the Scripture says about that. Psalm 113, verse 9. He settles the barren woman in her home as a happy mother of children. <laughs> Praise the Lord. He said, barren. I'm not barren. Wow. Barren just means without. doesn't mean you can. It means without. Truthfully, you could say nobody was ever barren that had kids, right? <laughs> they thought they were for some time and God honored it. In Luke 2, which we're not going to read because I'm out of time here. In Luke 2, you see that they took Jesus to the temple. And while in the temple, there's a man named uh, Simeon who comes up and says, Wow, 
I've seen, my eyes have seen the salvation of the Lord. I can go to the grave in peace now. This guy's going to be destined for the rising and falling of many in Israel and all these beautiful things. And that's the one we quote the most. There was also a prophetess named Anna who had been married to her husband for seven years and then lived 84 years without him. On this idea of silence, she ran right up and prophesied to the Messiah and to his parents. Anybody remember what the last thing Jesus did on the cross was? He made provisions for his mama. He took care of his mom. Because from an earthly standpoint, he owed her a debt. From a spiritual standpoint, we all owe her a debt. Had that one mother not done what she was called by God to do, salvation as we know it couldn't have come about if mothers today don't continue in that same attitude. And where did Mary get the attitude from? Eve. Women have always been bearing children in the hopes of producing salvation. It's a noble thing. Solomon honored his mom. Leviticus 19.3 says it in this way. I bet you never heard it quoted this way. Most scriptures say honor your father and your mother, right? Leviticus inverts the order to teach you something important. It says, each of you must respect his mother and father. You must observe my Sabbath. I am the Lord your God. He puts mother before father. Why might he do that? Every other time we do father than mother. Because that is the order of command. And he was emphasizing the mom. Miriam. Here's Miriam leading the women in Israel. Exodus 15.20 Then Miriam the prophetess You know Miriam was called the prophetess? Aaron's sister took a tambourine in her hand and all the women followed her with tambourines dancing. Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for He is highly exalted. The horse and rider He has hurled into the sea. Before we're ever critical of any woman trying to teach, trying to do anything good for God, you need to think of it in light of Miriam. Was what she did wrong? Did it before all of Israel. It says she sang to the women. That's what it says. But all Israel was there watching. So maybe somebody has a national ministry supposed to be focused on women, but there are men listening too. Does that make it wrong? Not any wronger than Miriam was. Huldah, the prophetess, was a woman. We're going to close here. And uh, as we close, I just want you to consider the thought of what obedience and disobedience are worth and what they cause. What if Jeremiah's mom had decided that she wanted a career as a seamstress instead of being a mom? What if Mary had done it? Paul had a mother. What if Timothy's mom had decided to have him, but it was more important to earn a place in society and she didn't stay home and teach him? What would the cost of that be to us? See, we say Mary was great and we're excited about Mary because of what her child did, but we don't know what Chloe will do. We don't know what Judah will do. We don't know what Michael will do. Is it any less? And how can you know until it's after the fact? I mean, how can you know that? We owe our mothers a great debt, not just for being moms and putting up with dirty diapers. That's the least part of it. We owe them a great debt for being obedient to the call of God. Without moms, we could not experience salvation. That's the cold, hard facts. If all moms went on strike today, salvation would not come about. Man is not independent of woman, and woman is not independent of man. Y'all stand up and let's pray. And after we pray, if you had not talked to your mom today, go call her.